Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 293. We're almost at 300. Nice round number. What was yeah. that? Was that the movie? The uh, Mr. The 300. Oh, what's that? That was Mr. 3000. Oh, Bernie, that's right. Bernie Mac. That's right. Yeah. Rest in peace. Yeah. So uh, 300 was the uh, the Spartans or whatever, oh, that, right. that war movie or whatever. Yeah. Well, your faithful co-hosts are here, Brendan Mullooly, Tom Mullooly, and uh, today we've got a couple of different topics that we want to cover. I want to start out with an article that we both read by Cullen Roach. This, this guy re- knows recessions. This guy knows more about the Fed and the economy than uh, any other advisor I, I follow on uh, Twitter. He's, and he's very plugged in. Um, banking system expert, I would I would say. Pragmatic capitalism. Yep. So he, he had a post, uh, and the title was, Do Recessions Need to Happen? Uh, a lot of interesting stuff in here that I think uh, would be worthwhile to just kind of you know, riff on uh, as, as we get questions a lot about, you know, recessions and how soon they're going to come or how long or dramatic they're going to be. I mean, it's, it's always the, the headline fear that people are thinking about because they, they normally coincide with uh, bear markets and stocks. Not always, not usually. And you know, we're overdue for a recession, according right. to everyone. So there, there's actually a little bit on that uh, in here. Colin kind of started off by talking about just in general, how we we tend to uh, view the business cycle as as just that as a cycle. Like if you're looking at the hands of a clock, it's going to travel in a circle. I mean, you go to Econ 101 and you learn about the business cycle, and it basically equates to things go well and then they deteriorate and then they're really crummy and it's a recession and then you're recovering and then it's going well again and it, it rolls around like a clock, but. That's not necessarily how things have actually uh, panned out if, if you look at the trend of something like like GDP. Makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I wonder, as these discussions roll on over the years, you know, we talk about machine learning all the time, how computers can learn from their mistakes and get better and smarter and faster mm-hmm. as they can do things. Will the Fed ever become like a machine learning type of tool where they can get better and better at shaping the economy so that we don't slip into a recession. And we basically are on one trajectory going forward for a much longer period of time. Is that possible? Yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical that we'll ever eradicate recession. I don't, I don't think that that's going to occur, but I don't think that it has to happen in as tight a formation as people might think. Right. I think, so one of Colin's points was that if you look at uh, GDP growth over the years, the the economy tends to, uh, it, it more trends in a direction and then experiences like a, like a shockwave event, like we saw two recessions in the uh, 2000 to 2010 decade. Not necessarily the boom bust cycles that we saw back you know, when, when the United States were still uh, an emerging market coming right. out of things like the revolutionary and then the civil war, right. we, we were behaving uh, much more cyclically then. And, and in fact, you know, at that point, it probably did make more sense to expect, well, things are good. And so they have to be bad again soon because you were going through these circular right. turns, but, but it's not as much anymore in, in the post-World War II era of, of the United States. We should link to the article in the show notes. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we can also clip the Fred 
chart that's from the Federal Reserve of St. Louis in the show notes as well uh, to show one of the things that I, I just want to point out if you are listening to the podcast and you get a chance to go look at the show notes and we get the chart in there, the recessions are marked on that chart by the gray bars. And people are just beside themselves at times talking about going through a recession. And you'll notice that the chart from end to end uh, covers a period of about 70 years. Mm -hmm. The gray bars show where the recessions were. They're very short. They're extremely narrow compared to all the other periods of time out there. Right. So like if if you wanted to take one stance as as your default, let's let's assume that that's that's a rule. You can only lean one way or the other. So either you're going to have the uh guns and gold portfolio cuz and butter. Cuz yeah, right, yep. cuz you think everything's going in the crapper uh yep. or you can have some kind of stock bond portfolio, just a you know, regular mix of investments that assumes the world's going to be all right. If you had to pick one or the other, and you couldn't ever change, you would want the optimistic portfolio because you're going to be right most of the time. Right. And that's not to to downplay when recessions do happen. Like we see them and and people not only, you know, lose lose money uh, in investments, but they lose their jobs and things like things like that. But if you're positioned expecting that all the time, you're hardly ever going to be right. And you're going to be right at the gloomiest times ever. So is it really even any fun? It's not going to be fun, and you're probably not going to make money. No. Uh, you may save yourself from losing money, mm-hmm. but uh, you're going to have a hard time making money. Uh, so another point you touched on earlier, too, is is just the idea that we're like due for a recession because it's it's been a while. And and so there's actually a name for this that, that Colin talked about in the post. It's called the forest fire theory. And that basically states that the economy becomes more fragile as an expansion occurs. Uh, kind of like how you know a forest that uh, hasn't had any rain in a while becomes more susceptible to fire. You know it, it, that that sounds great, but that's that's not actually how it works. Um, so there's there's an alternative theory, and it's called the plucking theory, which means that the economy mostly operates uh, at full capacity, and then you know it, it trends, but it but it gets plucked lower like a guitar string, but that it like. It does just what a guitar string does, meaning it has a little give in it. It gets plucked right. lower, and then it and then it, it comes rebounds, back up. It right. rebounds, continues trending, and so while which is really what Milton Friedman was talking about. Yeah, that's that's exactly you know yeah. who Cullen's quoting here. But neither of them are one hundred percent correct. But again, if if you had to err towards one side or the other, I think that the plucking theory is more true than the forest fire theory. I don't think that that's very close to being true at all. But the plucking one is like, you know, 80% of the way there. Sounds reasonable. Most of the time, it is reasonable. There's a a few other thoughts that I have on this. The first is, having gone through a couple of these periods, it always seems like this recession, I'm using air quotes, this recession is the worst recession ever. Because it feels the worst because we're going through it. Uh, Hard to compare what you're going to go through in this next recession with the last recession or a recession from the 80s or 60s. We don't know because we were different ages, different set of circumstances, really hard to tell. The other point that I'll make is that I'd like to ask Cullen this question. I don't believe any two recessions are alike. And so while people remember what happened in 2007 and 2008, and it was certainly bad, There's no guarantee that the next recession 
will look, feel, or act the same way. The last set of circumstances don't necessarily give you the uh, playbook or the answers to the test for the next one. The only similarities will be that GDP will be declining. doesn't necessarily need to be negative uh, GDP growth, as, as Colin uh, pointed out here. Uh, it hardly ever is, in fact. You'll have similarities, meaning GDP growth will slow down, and we probably see some kind of a corresponding or uh, leading decline in the stock market as well. Not necessarily, like, so if you just assumed that the next one was gonna be like the last one, you'd be like, wow, so like housing prices are gonna tank and the banks are gonna fall apart. And that's not necessarily true because no. we had a recession in 2000 to 2002 that wasn't anything like that. No, it was different, different circumstances. So if you try to learn too specific a lesson from each of these instances, you're, you're just going to be fighting the last war every time. Right. You know, you would have assumed that the next recession coming out of the one from 2000 to 2002 would be caused by like tech stocks in some capacity or, or a, you know, a terrorist attack or something like that. And all these things come together to, to create the circumstances that lead to recession. But doesn't doesn't mean that if you see one of them again, that uh, it's it's an indicator of anything. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. So when we talk about recessions, normally we're going to see some kind of drop in stock values. Ben Carlson had a really good article uh, that he posted just the other day that I think we want to uh, talk about next. Yeah. So Ben Ben wrote a, a post and he was trying to just put, you know, whatever the next market downturn ends up being into perspective. And uh, one of the cool things that he did was he took a chart that uh, you and I have both seen and, and maybe some listeners have too, where it shows you the percentage loss that you can experience and then the corresponding gain that you need to break even from that loss. You often see this trotted out by uh, people who are like tr trading, maybe even day trading, because it's it's mostly about risk management. And, you know, there's there's certainly a time and place for that. But what Ben did, uh, just to juxtapose it, I mean, the numbers are right in both of these circumstances. Well, it just, just go through a couple of your... the numbers just to refresh the listeners. So a 10% loss means 11.1% to break even. 20% loss means you need to make 25% to break even, so on yeah. and so forth. So basically, you've got to make more back to get back to even. Yeah. So Ben actually kind of flipped this, though. Yeah. So like if you know the, the gain that, that you had sat out, like let's say you went to cash, because you thought we were due for a correction, uh, and then the market went up 100% while you were waiting, you would need to see a 50% decline just to get back to where you were when you decided to go to cash. Um, if you called for 150%, you need a 60% crash just to just to be back to where you were. So like, you need to see some pretty serious declines if you're waiting it out because you think we're due for a bear market, uh, and you're wrong. Some, some, of, these, some of these things, we're, we're up... So these stats, so we're up almost 500% from the lows in March of 2009 on the S&P 500 now. Okay, so a bear market, t like starting today, of 20% would take us back to levels seen last year. A year ago. Right. 
uh, a 30% bear market, which Ben points out is more or less the average of what we've seen over the course of history, would take us back to levels from the springtime of 2017. Wow. Right. And a 40% crash would take us back three, about three and a half years, a little further than that. So the 40%, a 40% crash would take us back to Brexit. Yeah, like 2016, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right before the election. Yep. I don't know. I think I think things were okay. Right. Like, you know, assuming obviously the people who need to have money from their investments have that money that's going to be needed over the next couple of years in something like bonds that's going to hold up while the stock piece does something crazy like that. Is is the world over because we're back to levels that we saw just a couple of years ago? Right. Just to put it into perspective, because, you know, again, you'll see plenty of alarmist stuff. And maybe this is the other end of the spectrum and reality is somewhere in between for most people who have to experience periods of distress like this with their investments. But interesting to think about because you usually don't consider that Not in the all. moment. You're you're yeah. anchored to the highest value you ever saw in your account and you're 20% lower than that. And it doesn't matter that you were there just a year ago and you were perfectly happy then. Right. It doesn't feel like that anymore. It won't. People feel losses a lot more than they do gains. Yeah. Uh, I think Ben had noted that uh, if we lose, we're recording this at the end of January 2020. If mm-hmm. you lose 10%, it just it gets us back to the middle of October. Right. Not that much of a loss. Yeah, it's just a different perspective on things. Uh, we we thought that Ben's take on it was probably more useful, uh, meaning the the chart showing, you know, how how much of a gain you could sit out and then the corresponding decline versus the the trader mentality of if you lose 10%, you need to make 11 back to right. get back to even. Getting back to even is the epitome of a trader mentality. Like that, that's, that is what it is, you know? I don't think most people get involved in investing, whether they're trading, speculating, or just investing for the long term. They, I don't think they're doing it to break even. Right. I just think that you have a, a losing mentality there. You're probably always going to take small losses on your money because you're too afraid to let it run and do what it can really do over the long term. There is no long term if you're cutting it short every time you lose 10% because you're worried you won't make the 11 back. That's an indicator for us, you know, when we uh, hear conversations and people say, well, I made 10% in this thing, so I'm just going to take it. That worries me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but... It just means uh, we probably missed an expectations conversation somewhere along the way because that's not... It's not what we do. And we're not doing this for 9 and 10% clips. Right. It's just not really we're putting the investment way to do plans it. into place that are that are going to be at work over over decades and and support people over that same time horizon. So So really what we're doing is we're we're using these plans to build foundations. Yeah. Not you know, pick off trades here and there. Hey, so no, no, no great segue here. You had a couple smooth ones there, but I was uh, working on them. I did want to bring a post to the table from uh, Morningstar. I think this is actually this is a, a white paper where they were talking about. Is this about getting the raises? Yeah, yeah. So this what, was really excellent. So what do you do when you get a raise, and uh, how how do you basically how do you combat something that we in the industry call lifestyle creep, meaning you get a raise and then you, uh, you know, correspondingly just spend, spend the extra money that you're making instead of doing something more thoughtful with it. I got a raise. I'm going to treat myself to go out to dinner Mm -hmm. once a week, or, you know, I'm going to get that bigger car or. That's all nice. And I think that you should uh, take a little bit of a raise to treat yourself because you got to live your life. But 
uh, if you do it unintentionally, you're also you're creating an issue for retirement planning too, because then you get used to whatever this higher income level is. And and any of any clients who are listening know that that phase one of our planning process is getting a grip on cash flow, and because that monthly number is what you shoot to have in the future. If you're comfortable with this now, it's it's what you know you want to have the same lifestyle in retirement when you're right. living off of your investments. We so, hope not to go backwards. Yes, right. but if you're if you're still working, accumulating, you could be expanding this this number that you're planning for, which therefore means uh, you need to save more to, and earn more on your investments to throw off the cash flow that you're going to need in the future. That presents a, that yeah. presents a problem, right? Because exactly. you know, then we have people who are getting older and they want more and more return, more and more juice mm-hmm. from their investments, which and means they have a shorter and shorter time horizon right. to get it over. Yeah, they have to take more risk, and that is going to be a recipe for disaster. Right. So, some rules of thumb for people uh, from from this Morningstar uh, article um, that I thought were really good, just Basic recommendations, not one size fits all, but uh, you know, certainly better than just winging it if you get a raise. So if you get a raise, one thing you could do is you could spend twice your years to retirement. So if you're going to retire in 10 years, uh, you can spend 20% of your raise and save the other 80% of it. You could also, you could save your age as a percentage of the raise. So if you're 50 years old, you save 50% of the raise. Uh, and the third one was you should save at least 33% of your, your raise. So like if if you've got a young person and they look at the second rule, meaning save, save your age as a percentage of the raise and you're only 25 years old, you should probably default to at least a third. Right. Even though that that negates the rule before it. But again, these are generalizations that I think ultimately just having any kind of a plan in place here for how you're going to deal with it beats having nothing. So none of these is perfect. I don't think there is a perfect answer. It's going to be different for everybody. But if you at least have a set of rules, even if there's, you know, somewhat flawed, it's better than the person who doesn't think about it. And then before you know it, that that money is just gone every month from the checking account. And I think what goes side by side with a report like this is the idea that you should have your safety net your emergency funds in place. You should be maxing out your retirement contributions at work if you have a plan. You should be doing all of these things. And so your raise may be the way that you springboard into these actions. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, now I'm going to boost up my uh, emergency fund. Or now now that I've got this raise this year, this is going to give me an opportunity to max out my contributions for my retirement plan. So a point, though, just to interrupt for a second, is that let's say you are doing those things. Like you have your emergency fund uh, and you max out your retirement plan already and you get a raise. Some people might take that to mean like, well, I'm checking all these boxes like. I guess I'm good then, and I hey, should retirement's spend the rest of it. done. I'm I'm all set. I think if you're maxing out your retirement plan, I mean, this is obviously based on what kind of income you have and spending and stuff. But like, there's there's more to do after that. And and in fact, if you're if you're a high earner, uh, you you probably should be going above the annual limits for something like a 401k because it's unlikely to be enough if you're spending a good chunk of your income and you and you're making. Well, that's interesting. I mean, let's just say, I mean, we kind of have to suspend reality for a moment here, but let's just say uh, someone who is 25 years old 
and they're going to work for 40 years mm-hmm. and they can they're fortunate to be in a position where they can max out their contributions every year. I don't think we've ever done the math on something like this, but I think they're going to be putting in something in the tune of 750 to $800,000 if we just keep the number around 19,000 a year. That's the tough part. That's the that tough changes, part. So. We don't know. And also, what are they going to earn right. over time? That's so what we I mean. need to so calculate like, the internal rate of return. But I, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is we don't know if maxing out your contributions for your entire work career is even going to help you get to the number you need. I mean, we've we're, got a report. We're missing, we're missing a variable in the equation, which is how much they spend then. So right. like, if we assume they make $100,000 and they're hitting their max and they're that means they're putting 20 in, I think those numbers, and then you assume that the rest is going to taxes and being spent, if that number, if that situation exists in a vacuum forever and never changes, I think that's probably fine. You're saving 20% of your income. That's right. great. But if you make $200,000, and you're saving twenty thousand dollars a year, and you're mm-hmm. and you're spending and being taxed on the rest of it. Like that's not going yeah, to be enough because a- you're assuming that you're spending way more there. You're you're spending one hundred eighty thousand dollars, and you're going to need that to support yourself in the future. Meanwhile, you're only putting ten percent into your retirement account. So it's it's all situationally dependent. With that in mind, did you see the headline that I saw about now you need three million dollars for retirement? Right. So again, these round numbers are are missing variables. This was in Market Market Watch saying that you know people think they need a million dollars for retirement, and now some people are saying you need three. And my answer is it depends, yeah. because it depends on how much you spend. It depends on your situation. That's completely dependent right. on that. Yeah. If you're planning on retiring and spending two hundred grand a year. Because yeah, that's your gonna, lifestyle. You're gonna need a lot of money. <laughs> you're gonna need a lot. Yeah. You're gonna need a lot. Right, Three million you, may not. If you can live on thirty or forty grand a year, then you're gonna need less. You can't pick those people out of a lineup, even even if you knew their earnings. Because right. some people make a lot and spend a lot. Some people make uh, a little and spend a lot. Some people make a little and spend a little. And some people make a ton and spend very little of it too. So like you have all these different mismatches, and some of them are healthier than others. And you need to kind of do some discovery before you tell somebody what round number to shoot for. I don't right. I don't like the round number thing anyway, which I think we've it doesn't discussed work. before. It doesn't and, and really I, work. I, I don't also, think it's a useful rule of thumb. I also think that how many people see that headline on a website like MarketWatch and they're like, okay, now I need $3 million. Uh, I might as well quit now. Yeah. You know what? I'm just going to go out and buy myself a Big Mac for lunch. Yeah. Yeah, it's, so. it's discouraging. I don't think it's helpful. Right. Because I think one of the things they noted in there was like the percentage of like millionaires in the U.S. is like 5% of the population or something like that. So like even the million number for people to shoot for is is probably not super realistic or helpful and, and almost certainly discouraging to the vast majority of people who are checking out headlines like this. So. All right. That's going to wrap up episode number 293. Thanks again for tuning in and we will catch up with you on the next episode.